The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Good morning. I will be reading uh, a verse from today's scripture. So will you please stand with me? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And I will be reading it in Armenian as well. This is the word of the Lord. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah, I, you guys are surprisingly awake for being here an hour early. I am so proud of you guys. You guys are the ones that are, that are amazing. You guys are the ones that know what it's like to, uh, to see incredible things that do happen. The world exists before noon, and, uh, and you guys are the ones that know that, so I'm, I'm glad. Well, we say uh, welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We say Burbank location because we have a Granada Hills location, and together we're a collective of churches with a shared sense of leadership, shared vision, a shared mission. We have a deep love for the valley and for Los Angeles, and we want to see Jesus-centered, neighborhood-loving churches planted in every city in the valley. That is what we believe God has called us to help do. Uh, Not all of those will be Story City churches because Story City is not the answer to anything. Jesus is the answer to everything, but we do want to see his name glorified in every city in the valley. So we're excited about that, excited about what that means. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Again, we're so glad that you are here. Uh, We do want to get to know your story. Everybody's got a story. We want to know yours. If you didn't get a gift at the welcome table, please make sure on the way out that you stop by the Next Steps table, which is under the same tent as the welcome table, and get a free gift. We'd love to give you something. And then, um, again, get a chance to to say hi. But even if you don't want to talk to them, just walk up, point to the gift, and walk away. It's totally fine. Uh, It's good. Now, we exist, Story City exists, to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. That word healthy is an imperative for us. It's something that we really care about. We work hard on. So a lot of the, Eric said, the language matters. The language matters because we're working really hard to make sure that we have healthy language around healthy practices as we follow Jesus in healthy ways. And so that's an important part. What does it mean? It means that as we're building community, right, family's difficult, the truth is, though, that we, we are learning how to be family together. We're learning how to love Jesus and how to walk with each other as we discover how our stories are connected to Jesus and to each other. Jesus summed this up by saying there's two commands that are more important than anything else. He said the first is that we have to love the Lord our God with everything that we are and have. And the second, he actually says, is equal to that, that we have to learn to love our neighbors and ourselves. Now, the question comes up, what does it mean to love our neighbors? And it means that we extend the same rights, the same privileges, the same grace, the same belief that their intentions are good. That's the hard one. And the same kindness that we would give ourselves to those people that we come in contact with. That's what God has called us to do. Good? You guys good? All right, I have one order of family business to address, and then we will move on with the service. And that is, some of you know, for a while now, we have been searching for, actively, a candidate to fill our director of worship development position. And so uh, our director of worship development oversees all worship at all locations. They're a collective level employee, and so they uh, help us develop worship, both at the Granada Hills location here and any future locations that we plant. And so uh, we are excited to announce that though we have interviewed many, 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 many 
many people, <laughs> we have finally got to the place where we have somebody that will be coming here to uh, lead worship for you all as a trial period. They will be here next week. And so uh, we are excited for you to come and experience that. Yep. Yep. We'd love to hear your feedback on Ray when he gets here. I think you will enjoy him. Uh, there is, uh, they are incredibly connected to the industry here, to the music scene. Um, Ray's wife is currently on Broadway. So uh, a lot that, that meets up with who we are as a church, I think you will enjoy him. And so make sure that you're here next Sunday, March 19th. Come meet him and help him experience who we are as a church. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into our, uh, the rest of our service for today. Father, uh, I just can't tell you how grateful I am. I, I lack words to describe how good you are. Just as we sang that song about grace this morning, I, I feel as if there's not enough I could say about how overwhelmingly amazing you are. And so, God, I thank you that it's not my effort that determines how much you love me. I thank you that you love each and every one of us to the fullest of who you are because you are love. And that means that you don't love partially and then wait for us to respond. It doesn't mean that you wait for us to to show some effort and then you reward us with love. Father, you are love and therefore you love to the fullest extent. Thank you that we get to experience that from you through your grace, through your mercy, through your favor on our lives. That we get to, as we get to know you, that we get to... um, see and understand your heart for us, that you are for us and not against us. Help us to be good students who listen to you, who make space in our life to listen to your spirit as you guide us and direct us and lead us to what it means to glorify you, to love you with everything we are and have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray that this message today would be one that helps us to do exactly that, to bring you glory by the way that we live, the way that we understand you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is one of my favorite conversations to have around um, uh, that Paul has between the Church of Corinth and uh, and himself, and so um, it's one of my favorites because I grew up in a very moralistic home, a home that was really if you screw this up, you're probably going to lose your salvation, and so even if you don't have this down, fake it till you make it, so your heart changes. And by God, don't let anybody see you messing up because we want to make sure at least we look good enough for those that are around. If uh, I remember the first time I came home with a tattoo, <laughs> that was quite the ordeal. Um, uh, you know, uh, my, obviously I didn't look, you know, like this. My, my wife had a funny conversation the other day. She was like, how many tattoos? Somebody asked, how many tattoos did you have? She's like, I don't know, like three, four? <laughs> I was like... Ten, like maybe, like we're, we're a little off on the scale of how many uh, tattoos. But uh, she's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Oh, I forgot about that one too. I forgot about that one. Uh, anyhow, the point is that, that this was something that was uh, really near and dear to my heart. It was dear to my heart because the assumptions were that based on my looks, because I loved punk music and I played in punk bands and I had blue hair or lots of different colored hair, that the assumption from my church and from my Christian uh, friends and my parents was that I was a bad kid. And they let me know that all the time. That I was in danger of going to hell constantly because I looked a certain way, therefore I must have been rebellious. I loved blowing their minds by being the most gracious kid I could be and they just didn't know what to do with like, I'm seeing this punk and yet here's this really gracious guy. I, I, I think it's probably why I still have this stick of, I think my favorite compliment is you don't look like a pastor. Still one of my favorite things. 
Uh, it probably goes back to that rebellious thing as a kid. But for me, this is a very personal conversation between Paul and the church in Corinth because I've wrestled with these things for much of my life. Now, some of you might be able to relate to that. Some of you might have grown up in those type of homes. But for those of you that didn't grow up in those type of homes, don't worry, the church in Corinth didn't grow up in Christian godly homes either. And so these questions about how to live this out are still relevant as they're trying to figure out what does it mean to have this idea of what Christian, Christian freedom is. At the end of the message today, I hope we will all have a much clearer idea of Christian freedom is, but even more, why we've been entrusted with it. So for those taking notes today, this is our big idea. Our big idea for the day is this. As apprentices of Jesus, we have freedom with purpose. As apprentices of Jesus, we have freedom with purpose. We're going to see that our freedom is from and for Jesus. We're going to see that the purpose of our freedom is to benefit God's kingdom and build up people. And finally, that the end goal of our freedom is to glorify God. We have freedom with purpose. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 10 today, but we're going to be going back to chapter 8 because chapter 8 begins this conversation that Paul has, and he actually references it. He goes back to it as an example for how to apply it and how to give context to understanding his answer in chapter 10. So uh, Herod did a great job of reading a section of that. It summed up our passage today. Let's get the fuller context of the passage by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 31. It says this, Everything is permissible. Now, I want you to stop for just a second. You'll see that in your Bibles, this may be in quotes. It may be in quotes as a reminder because Paul is responding to a letter from the church in Corinth, and they've been asking him questions. And so when you see this in quotes, it's probably a part of the phrasing they used in the question. Like, hey, if it isn't everything permissible, then what about, does that mean this too? We don't know because we don't have the letter that they wrote to him. But because it's in quotes, we know that he is responding to their question when we read this. So let's go back and see it again. Everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth of the Lord is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Here's the breakdown. In verse 23, Paul begins to answer the question about what is permissible and what is not permissible. Uh, You guys might have heard this said a lot. Can I do this? Right? When you were a junior high and high school pastor, you get that a lot. Can I do this? Guess what? You get the same thing when you're a pastor of adults. Can Pastor, can I smoke weed? Pastor, can I see this movie? Pastor, can I do this? You guys know the number one question asked of a pastor, right? Can I ask you a question? That's right, exactly. That is it. So here's the deal. Verse 23, Paul begins to answer the question. Verse 24 helps us look back at verse 23 and learn how to apply it. 
Verses 25 to 29, they get to the heart of what the Corinthians are wrestling with. Again, Paul using this as an example to help us understand. And then verses 30 and 31 give us the reason why behind Paul's answer, and that gives us a clue in how we're to apply that to every situation. Because Paul doesn't give us a list of every possible question we could ask. Paul gives us an understanding or a principle that we can apply as we're trying to figure out what is permissible for us to apply to our own lives. Okay. So now's the time we should go back and look at chapter 8. Let's understand what started this conversation off in the first place. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 4 to 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 13. Paul says, About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, As there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some of us, some have been so used to idolatry up to now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Now, let me pause here for a second. Many of you, this is triggering. Some of you who grew up in Christian homes were told you're not allowed to do that. It's a sin because you might stumble others. There's a chance, a perception that somebody sees you doing what you're doing and you're going to become a stumbling block and so it became an issue of control. You hear what I'm saying? It became an issue of control that overzealous parents and religious leaders used in order to make sure that you stayed far, far away from what might possibly be bad and it was often couched in the terms of you might possibly make somebody else think or act different. Here's the truth. We can't make people do anything. You can't make people feel something, right? When somebody says, you made me angry, no. I did something that hurt you, offended you, or whatever else. You chose to respond in anger. I didn't make you angry. I might have done something that was wrong, but your response is still your choice, right? And so in the same way, I'm, I'm spending a moment on this because I'm trying to de-weaponize this for some of you. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's totally fine. But those who do understand why I'm spending a moment there. Verse 10, for if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And this is where they got that thinking from. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers or sisters and wound their weak conscience, are you, you are sinning against Christ. So there's a grain of truth to what they were saying but I want to help us clarify how that's applied today. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fail, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Now, what is the issue at hand? How do we weigh this with Paul on one hand saying, hey, you have freedom, on the other hand saying, don't do it because it might sear their consciences. Now, Jews and Gentiles at this point have just begun to learn to live in the freedom of grace. As they're apprenticing Jesus, they are learning that there is freedom. They are no longer under the law. They're still arguing about what that looks like, but they're starting to enjoy this new freedom. Peter and the Holy Spirit 
and said there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but their hearts have been cleansed by faith, not by how well they have followed the law. Now, we're going to get to what we mean by that a little bit later, the law. But for now, I want us to understand that freedom from salvation is freedom from our own effort getting us to a place where salvation is based on our own works. And so this is the freedom they have. We're saved through faith by grace, and that's what gives us freedom. The problem was there were still serious questions about how do we apply that freedom. That's great we have freedom, but how do we live this out? What does it mean? Now, the other thing that played into this is the civil and uh, uh, cultural centers of the day were, were the temples. The temples were not like some foreign sanctuary that you only went to on a special occasion. The temples were open all the time. They were a part of daily life. In fact, people often ate there. It would be like a place you would picnic. You would hold meals there. And Corinth was no different. And so when their friends invited them to feast, oftentimes they were inviting them into these pagan temples to go have a meal. When they were eating at home, you would go shop in the market and the meat you would choose was oftentimes meat that was left over from a sacrifice in a temple to a certain idol. And so the, the people would bring in their sacrifice, they would do their blessing to the idol, and then the priest would sell that to make money. Otherwise, it just goes bad. They can't eat all of that. They sell it in the marketplace. That's how they make money off of it. And then Christians were buying it and they're like, hey, is it an issue? Is it a problem now if I buy this meat that was previously sacrificed to this idol? Some Christians have no issue with it whatsoever, while others are having a real issue not only eating it themselves, but they're having a really hard time with any Christian that does. And so this becomes a great debate and argument in the early church. Paul's argument in verses 4 to 6 is that, hey, look, idols aren't real. And so it doesn't matter how many gods or lords or, or things that people come up with. He's like, look, if it gets sacrificed to an idol, it's, it's, it's a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal. It's a piece of stone. It doesn't hold any power. That's Paul's argument. He's like, look, there's no other God but Yahweh. But instead of leaving it there, instead of just saying they're not real, they have no power, Paul does something really interesting. He wants us to consider how our choices either bring people towards Jesus or away from Jesus. And so he reminds us that not everybody understands this new freedom. In fact, he tells us in verse 7 that there are those who are so used to idolatry that they were worshiping in those very temples, that, that dining in, in, in that temple again makes it difficult for them to figure out, like, hey, I kind of still feel like I'm worshiping this God that I spent most of my life growing up worshiping, and now that I'm a Christian, I'm having a hard time distinguishing between being in this temple and worshiping Jesus and being in this temple and worshiping the God that I used to worship. And so Paul says, hey, we, we have to pay attention to what we're doing because our freedom is not more important than their ability to follow Jesus. Do you see the issue he's not saying? He's not saying, yeah, it, it, now the meat has become a sin. Do you get what he's saying? He's not saying and the meat is suddenly sinful. He's saying the meat is still not sinful. But what we're paying attention to is their conscience, their thing that they're struggling with. And so our freedom is never more important than people. In other words, Christian freedom is actually not the pinnacle or the height of Christianity. Let me say that again. Christian freedom is not the height or the pinnacle of our faith. That's a very difficult thing for us to understand in a Western civilization. Because freedom is one of the ideals. Both individual and personal freedoms are, are things that we feel almost above everything else. 
That, that freedom is something we value so much. Don't impinge upon my freedom. And Paul is saying your freedom is secondary to other things inside Christianity. And so if you're taking notes today, this brings us to our first observation about the purpose of our freedom. First observation about the purpose of our freedom is this, that our freedom is from and for Jesus. Our freedom is from and for Jesus. See, the Jews of Jesus' day would have recognized three types of law found in the books of the law. That's Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, these laws were all jumbled together. They're written together, but they have three main categories that they apply to, which is how we know there are three different laws. They are the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the sacrificial law. Now, the moral law related to things like where our heart was. So laws like Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And laws like the Ten Commandments, these would be the moral law. The ceremonial law was about holiness and purity. And so it included laws like Deuteronomy 14, 3-7. You must not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. Oxen, sheep, goats, deer, gazelles, roe deer, wild goats, ibexes, antelopes, and mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has hooves divided in two and chews the cud. But among the ones that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you are not to eat these animals. Camels, hares, hyraxes, though they chew the cud, they do not have hooves. They are unclean for you. This is about purity. The sacrificial law then was about atoning for our sins and included laws like Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people... He is to present to the Lord a young unblemished bull as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and slaughter it before the Lord. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is called the lamb that was slain, the perfect sacrifice. See, Jesus said himself he didn't come to abolish the law or to get rid of the law, but to actually fulfill it. We read in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So what does Jesus mean? The law is not going away, and yet we know that he is the fulfillment of the law. How? Because Jesus actually fulfilled all three Jesus is the fulfillment of all three laws because he was and is sinless. He is the only perfect fulfillment of the moral law. None of us can fulfill the moral law. We're not good enough, and yet Jesus was and is. Therefore, he is the perfect fulfillment of the moral law. Because he was the sinless, unblemished, undeserving sacrifice, he is the perfect fulfillment for the sacrificial law. That's why they call him the lamb that was slain. He is that. So he perfectly fulfills the sacrificial law, not just once, but forever. Because he was and is perfect and holy and pure, he is the perfect fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And because of this, he has freed us from following the law in order to be holy, sinless, pure, to sacrifice or be saved. We no longer need those things apart from Jesus. We don't rely on ceremonial cleansing because we've been cleansed by his blood. And we now find the moral law is satisfied because of the person and work of Jesus. The Bible says that his righteousness has been given to us. 
The big fancy Christian word is imputed, the imputed righteousness of Christ. We get to claim as our own not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has done something. And so now we get to be seen inside of his righteousness and his goodness. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says this, but now we have been released from the law. This is what it's talking about. Since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. This is exactly what Paul is referencing in verse 6 of chapter 8 to his letter to the Corinthians. He says, yet for us there is one God, one Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. For those taking notes say that brings us to our second purpose of our freedom. The second purpose of our freedom is this, to benefit God's kingdom and to build people up. To benefit God's kingdom and to build people up. Okay, so we have freedom. And we saw in chapter, in chapter 8 that our freedom is not more important than people. So what is our freedom really for? Well, let's jump back to chapter 10. And the beginning of chapter 10, I'm sorry, uh, beginning of our scripture today, verses 23 and 24, says this. Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So Paul says, we do have freedom, but not everything we can do is something we should do. We have freedom, but not everything we are free to do is loving to others. So the issue at hand becomes not whether the thing is right or wrong, but whether the thing builds people up and advances God's kingdom is how we should be looking at whether or not we apply our freedoms in that context. So the difference in what some of those people that were religious leaders and parents were saying is it's a sin to do it because you might make somebody stumble. Do you see the difference between, hey, it's not a sin, but if you do this, you're not really loving people. And so that means that there are times when it's okay to do whatever that thing is because you're not, you're not harming people in doing it. And there's times where it's not okay to do that thing. This is where it gets really messy. The church would rather have one, one answer and say, never do this. Because that way we could just make it black and white and be like, well, I don't know. What is the Holy Spirit telling you? That's way more messy. It's way more complicated. It's more difficult to like police so Paul takes us back to his argument in chapter 8, and he says we, mean, we need to be thinking about the good of others. Another way to say it again is that the exercising of our freedom never comes at the expense of loving our neighbor. Now, to help us how to apply this ideal, he goes back to his example of meat with idols. Verse 25, eat everything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm freeing you from worrying about it. It's fine. I'm freeing you from this. It's totally fine. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, God is God over all of it. Don't worry about it. Nothing is going to take that away from being God's. However, and I'm sorry, verse 27, if any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, go. Eat everything that's set before you. Just don't make a big deal about it. Don't start raising questions of conscience because that's when it starts to create an issue where you might confuse them or make things difficult. So Paul says, hey, eating the meat's not a big deal if it's something the Holy Spirit hasn't told you not to do or the people with you to do. But it's the last line that makes a difference. If there is an issue of conscience, this becomes a different matter entirely. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, don't eat it out of consideration for the one who told you for the sake of conscience. Now, why would they bring that up? The only reason they're going to bring it up is because they're, they're worried about it. Right? Hey, this might be an issue for you. I don't, I don't know. I just want you to know this is sacrifice to an idol. 
just in case you choose not to eat it. Now what they've done is they said, this is a problem for me, and I'm not certain about where it lands. And so Paul says, hey, if there's confusion, don't do it. Let it go. He's not saying you can never do that in your own home. He's not saying you can't do it with other friends, right? It's not a blanket statement. He's saying, hey, if if this comes up, here's how you handle this particular thing. I do not mean your own conscience, but for the other persons. And I love this line, for why is my freedom judged by the other person's conscience? Paul clarifies that what is at issue is not the act of eating the food, but that they're bothered by it enough to bring it up because they're struggling with it or unsure if it's right. Then for their sake, don't choose to exercise your freedom. This isn't about meat. It's about freedom. In this line, it's, it's this line at the end of 29 that can be helpful for those of us that grew up in those Christian circles and we're told that anything that could be bothering of any other Christian could be a sin. And so Paul makes it clear that if it isn't sinful for that person, it isn't sinful by it, they're not bothered by it, that we're just to be careful because we're trying to be considerate because we love people. Again, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So is what we're doing beneficial? Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Okay, is it building people up? No one is to seek his own good, but to go to the other person. The purpose of our freedom, then, is to benefit God's kingdom by building up and seeking the good of others. That's the purpose, the reason that we've been given freedom. For those taking notes, this is our third and final observation for the day as to why we have been given freedom. See, the end goal of freedom is to glorify God. The end goal of freedom is to glorify God. Look at verses 30 and 31. It's here that Paul gives us the why behind it and helps us to learn how to apply it. Verse 30 says, if I partake with thanksgiving, and this is key, Paul says, hey, I am thanking the Lord for what I have. If I'm thanking the Lord for this piece of meat that was sacrificed to an idol, I'm not thanking the idol, I'm thanking God. What does that do? In some ways, it's redeeming it because you're saying, look, my heart is worshiping God for this piece of meat. And we should worship God for meat. It's a great thing. (laughs) It's okay, God loves vegans too. I think. (laughs) And so here's the deal. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That is the litmus test. That's what we're supposed to pay attention to. See, Paul, what he's getting to is it's a heart issue. Paul is saying that what Jesus really cares about is where our heart is in all of this. And I love that he mentions Thanksgiving because he's putting this back. He's reframing this about an issue of our hearts. That's what he's been trying to get to this entire time. But see, Jesus addressed the exact, Paul didn't make this up, Jesus did. Jesus actually had the exact same conversation with his followers. Take a look at Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Jesus responds, are you also lacking in understanding Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside, including meat sacrificed from idols, can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. What he said is, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they devile a person. See, Jesus is saying the exact same thing. It's not about the meat. It's about your heart. Where is your heart? In addition to the things that, that are expressly prohibited in the Bible, Paul says what also makes something wrong is when we're doing it for the wrong reason. 
Ultimately, if we're doing something that doesn't bring God glory, it isn't right. Now, it may not be right because the action itself is opposed to God's will. You can't justify porn as a Christian freedom thing because it goes against Scripture. Or the wrong heart behind something that is not a sin. So drinking alcohol is not a sin unless you do it for the wrong reasons. So what is acceptable? Here's the hard part. The Holy Spirit's going to have to tell you. There may be seasons where it's okay to do something and it's not okay to do something in another season of your life. There may, be, there may be times where it's okay to do it around this group of friends and not this friends. We're not saying that you're two different people. We're saying you need to learn how to exercise that freedom well. You're going to discover that God's standard is different, and so we have to be practiced at learning to listen to him. As you do, you're going to hear him help you. Now, here's the thing. How do we apply this? I don't struggle with alcohol dependency personally. That's not my struggle, but I have a lot of friends who do. For those friends, for some of them, it's not right to drink at all. They can't. It's a struggle. And so it becomes an issue if I start drinking around them because then I have not used my freedom for the glory of God and building up my friends. Now, I have other friends that struggle with alcohol dependency, but it's not an issue for them. In fact, I have one friend that's been an alcoholic for 30 years. He has been sober for more than 30 years from cocaine, from alcohol, from marijuana, from other stuff. And you know what he does? He buys me a six-pack every once in a while to say, I was thinking about you. Because it's not an issue. In fact, he was a bartender when he got sober. Like for him, that wasn't his issue. God saved him from it. It's not something he struggles with. He just goes, look, I have no desire for that. That's not for me anymore. I don't care. (coughs) Pardon me. So guess what? For him, it's not an issue if I drink around him. It's not an issue of Christian freedom around him. It's free. I'm good with it, right? And so that's cool. My, my freedom can be exercised without harming that person in the same way that Paul says you can eat meat without violating their or my conscience. And while the Bible is okay, says it's okay to drink, it's also clear that we are not to get drunk. But here's the deal. Too many of us have used that as the standard, and that's not the standard. Jesus is saying it's something more. It's something more than that. I may not get drunk, but if I trust alcohol as an escape or a comfort instead of trusting Jesus as my comfort, I've sinned. If I have placed alcohol as my source of comfort instead of Jesus, I've actually made it an idol. And so I'm using alcohol as an example, but don't get hung up on that principle. Don't get hung up on that. It's the principle I'm trying to help us understand. For some of you, you grew up in really strict legal homes, and so the issue is how others dressed in church. Jesus is not concerned whether we have on church clothes, but he is absolutely concerned whether we have church hearts. Hearts that beat steadfastly to love God and love our neighbors. Substitute any other legal controversial thing here, and the standard is exactly the same. The Bible isn't anti the Bible isn't anti-alcohol or anti-dancing for you Baptists. It's anti anything that comes between us and God. The Bible is not anti-alcohol, anti-dancing. It's anti-anything that comes between us and God. The implication of Jesus declaring all food clean and, and pointing us back to our hearts before God is that he's given us this new standard. Jesus said, look, it's not about the external stuff you do anymore. I care about why you do what you do way more than I care about what you've done. And so what motivates our hearts to action is something that God pays very close attention to. Luke chapter 16 verse 15 says this, and he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. 
For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. So here's the question. What do we do with all this? What do we do with this? Some of you don't yet know that you have freedom. Some of you need to know that you actually have freedom. Some of you know that you have freedom, but you have no idea what it's for and how to use it. And so sometimes your freedom actually harms other people. We need to learn how to use it. We need to ensure that our freedom is building others up and bringing glory to God. Some of us have simply forgotten to be thankful for the freedom that we have. To view our freedom as not something that we've earned or as a right, but an undeserved special gift from God as a way to find pleasure in him so that we can have thankful hearts and to lead others to him through that gratitude and thankfulness of simply enjoying who God is. I don't know where you're at personally this morning, but I want to encourage you to take this home with you and process it. Talk to other people about it, whether it's your missional community group, your DNA group, or just some other friends, spouse, family, whatever. But spend some time before the Lord, quietly working through it with him. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth behind your motivation and your actions. And then ask him to help you bring your heart in line with his. Because I promise you, freedom, when it's lived out well, brings us joy and thankfulness and gratitude. So I want to challenge you. Don't just leave this morning and leave this alone. Wrestle with this week. It'll be beneficial to you, I promise. For those of you this morning that haven't started apprenticing Jesus but you want to know more or you started apprenticing Jesus but haven't taken the next step in baptism, I want to encourage you to go to the next steps table under the tent at the entrance. It's right where you came in. Our team members in the pink lanyards would love to talk with you or to pray with you and to discover the next chapter of your story. Good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your freedom. Freedom that is undeserved and yet freedom that is given to us. Oh, Lord, you are a gracious and kind God. I thank you that your love, your freedom, your grace, all those things are not based on what we do. That's mind-boggling. It's hard to understand sometimes. So would you help us to want what you want, especially in the days when we don't want it? Help us to love who you love in the ways that you want us to love them. Whether that means that we hold back or that we simply allow them to see us enjoying you for your glory, not for ours. Help us to know the difference in the name of Jesus.